Hello and welcome back to Rupture Radio. This week we have a special interview with Ty Moore from the USA. We talked to Ty and MJ Lynn back in November before the presidential election and we thought it was time to check back in. So Rupture magazine editor Jess Spear, who's from the US originally before moving to Ireland, sat down with Ty over the weekend to talk about the far-right riots on Capitol Hill, Biden's inauguration, Bernie's mittens meme and what the socialist left is and should be up to now. Uh, if you want to find out more about Toy and the Reform and Revolution Caucus of the DSA he's part of, then check out reformandrevolution.org and his link's in the show notes. But for now, I'll hand over to Jess. Welcome to Rupture Radio, Ty. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on again. So Trump is gone. Um, Biden was inaugurated on Wednesday, the 20th of January. And before we get into like what the Biden presidency means for the socialist movement, we have to talk about those mittens. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know about you, but ha- I mean, there have been so many memes at this point. Every single time that I check Twitter, there's like at least a dozen new ones. And to be clear, like this is not just coming from Americans I follow on Twitter, but also Irish Twitter has just exploded with it. Um, so mm. I'm wondering what the impact has been in America. I'd imagine times 10. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And it's it's an interesting phenomenon. Everyone is sharing on my family chat of all my cousins and aunts and uncles, which includes people who consider themselves Republicans. Um, there's uh, and used to be non-political space. There's all my cousins are sharing pictures of Bernie spliced into family gathering pictures and things like this. And, you know, I mean, there's political meaning, I think, in general, but also it's just become a cultural phenomenon. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my sister, I think, first shared it with me. And my sister was really into Bernie Sanders from his first presidential run. And then um, also my best friend messaged me a meme that she saw with it. And um, I haven't yet talked to my dad. We talk once a week. And I have no doubt that he'll be he'll be like, oh, I don't know about all these memes. Like, he's just trying to keep his hands warm. But I actually thought Naomi Klein had a really good take on it. She had an article in The Intercept. It had five different reasons for Bernie's mittens or like the symbolic power. And she said, quote, the symbolic power of the mittens was the work of the us in Not Me, Us, a decentralized movement of movements that represents thousands of grassroots organizations and tens of millions of voters, and that stands for policies supported by majorities of Democratic voters, according to many polls, but are still rejected by its elite. Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, student debt cancellation, free college, a wealth tax, and more. On Biden's big day, the movement that represents those policies and those values made global meaning out of a pair of old mittens. It did because it could. It was a friendly little flex with a not-so-friendly undercurrent. We're still here, it said. Ignore us and we won't sit uh, nearly so quietly next time, unquote. And I just, I think there's a lot of truth in that. You know, I think for so many people, there's this great sense of relief that Trump is gone. But also there's the sadness that, like, our movement wasn't strong enough. Um, and I think people saw themselves in those mittens and, and then also projected a lot of meaning on them. I think Naomi Klein is right on. And in some ways, it's a testament, I think, to 
ordinary people's capacity for collective action, even without the leadership. And in some ways, I think, unfortunately, Bernie Sanders is not offering the kind of leadership the movement needs, not staking out a real powerful independent position or putting political alternative. But despite that, he remains the main symbol of opposition to the corporate democratic establishment. And in all the pomp and circumstance and calls for unity that surrounded Biden's inauguration, you know, there were millions of people who viewed that with skepticism, who are not buying into things, but have no sort of outlet or voice. And so I think this became, for millions of people, or tens of thousands of people, hundreds of thousands, I don't know, many people, it became a, um, a vehicle to sort of jab at the um, falsity of uh, falseness of, of what uh, Biden was presenting. And, you know, I think the cultural strength um, of how much the Sanders movement has penetrated into American culture was uh, also revealed in the, in the meme event. Yeah. And it's interesting, just the international impact of such an image, you know. Um, Okay, moving on to Biden. So Biden signed 17 executive decisions on his first official day in office. So these include things like rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, canceling the Keystone XL pipeline, extending a federal moratorium on evictions. He put a pause on student loan payments and interests. And then he also ended the building of Trump's like famous wall. And I think, you know, this can sound and, and it is in many ways super radical compared to the last four years. You know, I think in particular, climate activists are very excited and hope that he, he might move in the right direction in terms of Green New Deal policies. But then he also announced that the U.S. would continue to see Juan Guaido as the leader of Venezuela. So the main question I'd put to you is, what do you think the Biden presidency will be like in terms of policy? Well, I think there's two important dynamics at play that <clears throat> um, it's helpful to sort of you know tease out. On the one hand, I think... Um, Many of these policies do reflect the very real pressure from below, the movement around Sanders, the uprising for Black Lives from last summer, you know, the generalized popular discontent, the feeling the you know, strong mood for action on climate change. All of these things exact a real pressure on the Biden administration. And I'll get into that a little bit further. But I think the other side of it is that it reflects these policies reflect the needs and the outlook of a big section of the U.S. capitalist class, which, you know, especially in the context of the economic downturn, the pandemic, you know, recognizes the need for significant state intervention and neo-Keynesian policies to stabilize their system. And it's not, you know, I don't think it's unique to the U.S. I think all over the world, um, particularly in developed world, but not only there, there we're seeing a global trend of this of a crisis of neoliberal politics, neoliberal economic policies. And in some ways, this predates the pandemic. But like, you know, all kind of moments of change, sometimes it takes moments of crises for, you know, the latent tendencies, um, uh, the, the voices of concern that have long existed in ruling class circles to become, you know, more dominant uh, uh, element. I know, you know, there's deeper economic roots of the neoliberal crisis of neoliberalism that I know Rupture magazine and and you guys have covered. There was Paul Murphy's, I think, really excellent article from last fall. But even from the more narrow point of view of like the short term political calculations, capitalist parties and politicians recognize that promoting austerity and deregulation 
is um, is deeply unpopular and has been reacting against them. So just one good example would be Biden's um, proposal to increase the federal minimum wage to $15 an hour and to try and tease out why is he doing that? My impression is that it's not just a slogan, that the Democrats are actually quite serious about trying to pass this. Um, you know, it may be I bet they'll do it with a very long phase in. I bet they'll make lots of loopholes and, and problems, but but it's significant nonetheless, given you know how long the minimum wage has stagnated. Biden, why is Biden, a previous staunch supporter of neoliberal orthodoxy, now pushing a policy like the $15 minimum wage? And I know, Jess, that you will be very familiar with Seattle-based uh, billionaire Nick Hanauer, um, oh, yes. <laughs> who... Uh, who famously back in 2013, um, you know, came out in favor of a $15 minimum wage uh, long before it was embraced by even most liberal Democrats. And he wrote a famous article, kind of a letter to his billionaire friends titled The Pitchforks Are Coming. And, you know, this was shortly after the Occupy movement. And he was, Nick Hanauer was seeing the six, the early wave of um, successful socialist electoral campaigns in Seattle. Um, you and I were both kind of part of that moment. And, and Nick Hanauer was saying, look, if we don't, uh, if, if the capitalist class does not uh, address the growing inequality in society that um, does not agree with policies like 15, raising taxes on the wealthy to redistribute the wealth, um, other neo-Keynesian policies, um, that they want that the system itself will be destabilized, both from revolts from below. Um, uh, and the long-term viability of their for-profit system will be undermined. So for Biden and the Democrats, just to kind of bring it home to the current moment, um, they, I think, more and more of the capitalist class and more and more certainly of the Democratic Party leadership has embraced um, this view, not from the point of view of, you know, sudden turn toward, you know, pro-worker attitudes or approach, but because they recognize the viability of their system is under threat, the mass popular discontent. Um, So I think there's both dynamics um, at play here. Yeah. And I mean, you can even see it in the response to the pandemic that Biden has come out with, you know, um, bringing in the Defense Production Act, talking about how they need to increase getting the vaccines to all the different areas. You hear stories about how people make an appointment to get a vaccine. They show up and then find out that, like, they don't have any left. And so Biden implementing the Defense Production Act and saying, hey, look, we need to not only increase what goes in the vials, but the production of the vials, the production of the needles, all those things, and just heavy state intervention, the total opposite of Trump. I think really, it's it's like you're saying, they understand that their system just cannot go on as is with like a severe neoliberal hands-off approach um, in terms of state being involved in this, but also, as you're saying, some of the more progressive policies that socialists would have been pushing seven, eight years ago at this point, you know, with the fight for 15 kicking off in 2012. Um, Yeah. It'll be interesting to see what happens with the pandemic. Absolutely. And I think, yes, Trump's response uh, or lack of response and plan was a disaster for the capitalist class. You know, he hoped just through, you know, whatever ideological willpower to reopen the economy, but that failed again and again and again. And uh, because, you know, the pandemic was ripping through uh, workforces. Schools are still largely closed um, despite Trump's attempts. And that 
from the capitalist point of view, they want to see a coherent response uh, to immunize folks to uh, deal with this. And Trump did not provide that. And so the, the sort of let the market rip, let the pandemic rip attitude actually has backfired on the capitalist class. And so Biden's um, proposals on this, which, you know, are in many ways, of course, welcomed by big sections of the working class, also correspond to the interests of the ruling class. There's also, I think, just a more narrow um, political calculation um, that Biden and the leadership of the Democrats are making. There was a number of articles and interviews with sort of leading Democratic strategists um, right after Biden won, speculating about what his policies would be. And one of the, it seems like there's a bit of a consensus that one of the main mistakes of the Obama administration after it first came to power in 2008 was that it did was not seen to do enough um, to address the needs of working class people uh, in that economic crisis. And that opened the doors for the Republican populist right, the Tea Party, you know, which was a precursor in some ways to the Trump phenomenon. Uh, the Tea Party swept electoral elections at the state and federal level in 2010. Um, and they were able to get, you know, take these were uh, Republicans who opposed the bailout in Wall Street in many cases, who positioned themselves as the fighters for the little guy, whereas these elite liberals like Obama bailed out the banks but didn't address um, the foreclosure crisis, ripping through working class communities, did not wasn't seen to have done enough um, uh, to address the impacts of the economic crisis for working people. And so from a narrow political point of view, the Democrats lost big because of that. You know, they tried to appease big business because that had been their main electoral strategy uh, that seemed to have worked for them for a long time. Uh, but they, you know, by abandoning their traditional working class base, they actually opened the door for right populism to develop course, and that culminated in Trump and, and the huge gains of the far right um, uh, elements in the Republican Party. So a section of Democratic strategists have been publicly saying to Biden, you got to um, do more this time. Don't repeat Obama's mistakes. That will be electoral suicide for the Democrats and open the door to a resurgent uh, right populism. So there's also that dynamic, I think, that's playing out um, that you know combines the pressure from below and the anger of the working class and the demands for real solutions to the economic and social pain they're suffering, um, but also corresponds with the you know political and um, electoral interests of the Democratic Party leadership. Yeah, I mean Obama's failure and the failure of the Democratic Party after he got elected, when they had the Senate and they had the House, you know the same situation. Was yes. You know, you had a huge boost for the Tea Party and then they lost the House. Um, and then the Democrats were able to say, hey, look, we can't get anything done because of the Republicans. Um, and, and, you know, I think a lot of people are really happy to see Trump gone, of course. Um, and I think when you combine that with like this sense of relief, just probably all across the country. I mean, people partying when yes. Trump lost the election is what I have in mind there. But what you were just saying about the strategic approach of the Democratic Party right now in implementing some progressive policies and all of that, um, you'd imagine that it will lead to an extended so-called honeymoon for Biden. So how will this change things for socialists um, like reform and revolution within the DSA that argue for a dirty break with the Democratic Party and for movements organizing for climate action, for defunding the police, trade union rights, and so on? 
Yeah, in some ways, I mean, in the very short term, it complicates um, the call. It it seems to confirm the strategy that Bernie Sanders and um, AOC and others have embraced of you know so-called realignment strategy. That's the the term used within the DSA debates, saying our goal is not to break from the Democratic Party, but um, to rather to realign uh, for the left to take over, or at least you know. Um, uh, put pressure uh, on the Democratic Party to move left, and so certainly those those uh, sort of reformist wing of uh, the socialist movement in the U.S. Um, is is going to use this moment is using this moment to claim that their strategy is a success, but I think that won't um, last very long, and the reason is is because. I think what's also happening is that there's massively raised expectations on the part of working class people. And there's a tremendous feeling that, all right, you know, um, the Democrats, you know, failed so miserably um, under Trump. And people remember the limits and lack of uh, progressive policies under Obama. And there's a certain hope that Biden will deliver. But there's also a demand that Biden must deliver. And I think move, people recognize and have been very openly talking far more than after Obama won in 2008, the narrative on the left, and I mean this, the broad left in, in the trade union movement, amongst the NGOs, et cetera, is uh, uh, we hope Biden will do well, but we know we need to pressure him. <laughs> we know we need to fight. And I think for their base, um, even those who embrace realignment strategy, will want to go much further than Biden and the Democrats will be prepared to go. Um, people will be happy to see the huge contrast with Trump, and that will, you know, take people a little ways. But pretty soon, people will be looking, you know, do they have jobs? Do they have housing? Um, how if the minimum wage is phased in over, you know, a long period of time, that you know, that's not going to answer people's immediate uh, economic pain. So I think. We are in for a period of rising struggle, of rising expectations, of a rising tide of demands at all levels from city, state, and, and uh, to the federal government. I think we are in for a period where um, labor, um, the strike waves that we saw of the teachers um, over the past period, there is a lot of bubbling up from below of energy and a feeling that now's our time uh, to fight back after um, years of defensive struggles under Trump. The Democrats will not be able to deliver uh, adequately on people's expectations on climate. You know, rejoining Paris Accord seems great compared to Trump. But if we remember, not enough. Yeah. most of the left, yes, at the yeah. time of the Paris Accord, most of the left was pretty united on this is profoundly inadequate. And I think it won't take long for the climate justice movement in the U.S. to recognize, well, that's nice. It's good that Biden is doing some some gestures. And of course, Biden's doing a bit more or, or promising a bit more than just rejoining. But I think people will recognize it's deeply inadequate to the you know existential crisis facing our planet, facing humanity and uh, movements to demand more will develop. And I think out of both the inadequacy of the Democratic Party, but also the sense of strength that develops when you see movements and uh, surging, um, the question of building a political alternative, I think, can be uh, posed in a fresh way in the years ahead, and I think will be. Yeah, and I think it's 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 really interesting what you're saying there that like 
really there won't be much of a honeymoon because people are quite skeptical. Even with some of the more progressive policies being embraced, for example, the $15 minimum wage, although I agree with you, they absolutely can bring it in. Over a long phase-in period, as we well know in Seattle, the longest phase-in period was seven years. Um, I mean, if you just, for example, look at the workers on strike on the inauguration day, um, there were headlines, uh, and of course there should be, about Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez going to the Hunts Point produce market in the Bronx, where the workers there who were frontline workers, were essential workers producing, um, or not producing, but, you know, stocking the shelves and all of that and being there to ensure people got their food. They were on strike for a dollar raise. Um, and she was there, skipped the inauguration in order to go there. It's kind of a signal that we are going to continue to build power in our communities and in our workplaces foremost. Um, we're not just going to sit pretty, you know, and I, I think that's that's quite a contrast to when Obama was elected in 2008, when all this hope um, existed and not much of a pushback right at the beginning. It took quite a lot of time for the left to get organized and to have popular support and some of the demands. There's honeymoons and there's honeymoons. I think Obama <laughs> Obama was elected in 2008 and a lot of people did feel like, man, we've, we've arrived. And there was a certain mood of you know, give Obama patience, give Obama time, let's not raise too many demands. You know, that was interspersed with uh, feelings about, you know, the victory of a first black president and not um, wanting to undermine um, the success of his campaign. But that took the form of uh, not putting real demands of movements, not putting real pressure on Obama. And that was disastrous. And I think there's a large um, segments of social movement um, activists and even social movement leaders um, are very openly saying, we can't do that this time. We have to fight. Even those who, you know, are doing that with while singing um, Biden's praises, nonetheless, they feel pressure to fight. And um, and that will open a dynamic that I think will actually be very favorable um, to left forces in DSA who are pointing out the limits of relying on the Democratic Party when change. Yeah, and it's interesting too when you consider that people are ready to push and ready to pressure and we're talking here about a very different kind of honeymoon for Biden when again you you think back to the Capitol Hill riots, some people call it an insurrection, I think people going too far calling it a coup, all of that um that took place on January 6th that happened and then Biden has a response in his inauguration speech calling it white white supremacy that we need to fight back against it which I think is unprecedented for a president to talk about such a thing. Um, so I'm, I'm interested to know how you would characterize the Capitol Hill riots, what you would call it. Um, would you see it kind of as the dying embers of Trumpism, or is it likely that we're going to see more sparks in the next four years? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, in one sense, it was sort of a, sort of a last desperate cry of uh, uh the hardened core of Trump supporters, you know, which included, you know, QAnon conspiracy theorists who genuinely believed that, you know, Trump had some plan that he was going to pull out of his magic hat to, you know, hold on to power. So it was a lot of folks who, from kind of very bizarre uh, um, frameworks, you know, felt that this was their last uh, stand uh, that they were and and were hopeful that it would actually succeed. Um, so the, but I think it was a tremendous overreach on the part of Trump and on the part of the Trump wing of the Republican Party, and is clearly 
backfired on them in a spectacular way and created a deep crisis in the Republican Party and a crisis even amongst um, sort of the white supremacist, uh, neo-fascist organizations, groups like the Proud Boys, um, which have recruited thousands under Trump and who Trump has sort of given, you know, uh, many winks to over the years. Um, the news reports are coming out that they are turning in mass on, on Trump's weakness, on Trump's failure. Um, as they are getting arrested by the FBI, Trump is, you know, silent because um, uh, he's he's worried about his own legal troubles. <laughs> and mm-hmm. they, QAnon uh, is collapsing um, because they're, you know, because <laughs> uh, their predictions didn't come, come true. So uh, there's a certain crisis that's happening on the far right, but I wouldn't... Um, say that this is sort of the end. I think, unfortunately, the social roots out of which they uh, developed uh, under Trump in no way are are going away. And I think unless, you know, we see a powerful working class left develop all the problems of, of capitalism, all the deep problems impacting middle and working class white communities, can be tapped into by racist nationalist uh, elements, um, and and that that's not going away unless um, unless the left really builds a response. And I think you know Biden may um, attempt to have a different approach than Obama did um, in two thousand nine two thousand ten to cut across the development of a Tea Party, and maybe they will, the Democrats will be temporarily successful. But they don't have a plan. None of their policies add up to a fundamental answer to the deep social economic uh, problems facing most working class people in this country. And unless the left can develop a class appeal um, to much of Trump's base to cut across that and offer a class working class answer, offer an answer of mass struggle, of multiracial solidarity, Unless that answer is given, I think the um, soil will remain fertile for right populism to to find a new champion and um, and find points of resurgence. Yeah, and I think also the way the Biden administration seems to want to go after white supremacy are, you know, an increase in the repressive powers of the state. And there's talk yeah. of the, you know, considering a new domestic terror law. We've seen how um, Twitter, Facebook, Snapchat, all of them removed Trump you know, just wholesale, just gone. He's banned, right? And I think a lot of us on the left said, hey, look, like, this is a problem. Obviously, we're happy to see Trump gone, and we're happy for him not to have a platform. But for so much power to be in the hands of so few people, where, you know, millions, billions of people are getting their information, discussing news, discussing politics, discussing events, it's problematic for the government to use a repressive apparatus, let alone a CEO to have control over um, and getting information out there. Um, it's obvious that they'll absolutely use that against the left. Twitter, at, whereas Facebook actually just, you know, got rid of the Socialist Workers Party um, right. Facebook page in the UK. I mean, I don't know how many followers they have, but I would imagine it's tens of thousands and we haven't seen the reason for it yet, but it's just gone. They've just gotten rid of it. Um, And of course, the Socialist Workers Party is demanding an answer and saying, hey, but it just goes to show that, you know, you give them tools that they claim they're going to fight the right with. 
they will absolutely use it against us on on the socialist left. Um, so I wonder whether you think we should expect a clamping down on our movements in the future. You know, if you look at how they were policing Black Lives Matter protests, you know, this is not new. But if you give them new powers, they absolutely will use it against us. And so do you think we should expect that? And does it signal an intention to kind of infringe on people's policy, people, people's privacy, not policy, um, as, as they definitely have in the past and absolutely continue to do um, right now? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head that the Democratic Party leadership, um, the capitalist class as a whole, is looking to use I mean, they they didn't like what Trump did <laughs> that undermined the legitimacy of their system, um, but they don't want uh, an, a, the kind of response I was proposing to deal with that. And they're adopting a law and order response. And I think certainly um, this will and already is, as you pointed out, going to be used the any domestic terrorism law to strengthen the repressive powers of the FBI, of the police. Um, will be used not just against right-wing um, groups. It will be used and is already being used, has been used against left um, organizations. I mean, people made a, a, an interesting analogy, like, and there's limits to this, like not all capital occupations are equal. <laughs> we should absolutely oppose, and we're not saying, oh, democratic rights for far-right insurrectionists who were clearly carrying out and planning, you know, uh, right-wing violence. But from the point of view of the capitalist class, they will make equations. A few years ago, in 2011, um, you'll remember, the capital of uh, Wisconsin was occupied for three weeks by uh, union activists, students, young people protesting the right-wing governor's attack on um, on union rights in Wisconsin, a very historic uh, attack on public sector union rights. And there was a, a peaceful... Um, nonviolent uh, occupation of the Capitol for three weeks. Um, and that was, in the end, repressed um, with police uh, brutality and force and arrests. Um, but, you know, you can have no doubt that the Biden administration, um, the repressive uh, uh, police forces in U.S. society will, you know, try and make an equation, are trying to make an equation between right-wing extremism and so-called left-wing extremism, and will use their repressive powers to do that. I think it's a, you made the point about, you know, giving power to the CEOs to censor things. And that's a complicated issue. I'm sure in Ireland, it's similar. People are celebrating, as you said, uh, uh, Twitter finally removing this platform of hate uh, speech that basically Trump's Twitter account represented. But <laughs> who should be the uh, moderator of what is politically acceptable speech? We agree. I think socialists should agree that, you know, platforms for Trump that Trump was using that promote violence, right-wing hatred, that should be uh, dealt with. But do we hand that to CEOs or do we have some sort of democratically agreed accountability system? And I think it points to why these social media platforms should not be treated as for-profit enterprises, but rather as public utilities brought under public democratic control and ownership, where there can be a democratically debated, discussed, and agreed policy of what is acceptable speech. And that, I think, will benefit the working class and the left, not the right. Um, but it gives us some insurance that, um, you know, this so-called uh, uh, repression the repression of the right will not just be turned around and used against the left um, when they found it convenient.
Yeah, and it's it's not as if they didn't have laws in place that allowed them to right. surveil, understand what was going to happen with far-right groups. They don't need new laws, new expanded repressive powers of all the different police apparatus that exists, the FBI, the CIA, the regular police, all of that. They don't need new powers in order to understand and to clamp down on white supremacists and the far right. Um, and I think it's really important for the left to point that out because they did say that they knew some things were going on, but they didn't prepare for it. And, you know, it's the same with how they monitor and prepare to police Black Lives Matter protests, environmental protests. They know what they're doing when it comes to the left, but somehow they need new repressive powers when it comes to the far right. I think it's really important for the left to stand out and say, hey, look, it's not the case. They they have the the, the laws at the moment. They have the power at the moment. Um, and we need to pay attention to this. Yep. I, I absolutely agree. And, and of course, even within the police forces, there's you know all the evidence of the significant sympathy amongst a significant layer of law enforcement for the far right. And, you know, that is more the issue than, uh, than the lack of, you know, repressive powers that they already have. Exactly. Yeah. So another aspect that I really want to get your opinion on is the prospects of the socialist left in America going forward. So we've seen a massive upsurge in activity, particularly around Bernie Sanders campaign, the first one and second one. But even with this, organizations like the Democratic Socialists of America are growing steadily. And the last time you were on the show, you noted that real developments towards an independent workers party could be possible under Biden. But how do you expect all this to kind of play out? Well, I think the potential clearly exists if the left is prepared to take the initiative to bring social struggles forward in the next period um, with demands, with a program that goes much further than the Democratic Party leadership is prepared to go. And I think that opens fertile ground for a discussion of the need for our own political party, the need for a mass democratic force that can link struggles in the workplace and the communities to a uh, electoral program that can unite the different struggles across the country in a common fight for a political change. And as I mentioned earlier, I think that is going to be vital um, if we want to push back against right populism and provide a working class alternative that the Democratic Party leadership, I think, will not provide and that they will try and uh, crush expressions of that, like Sanders, um, like AOC, within their ranks to the degree they're able. Um, but all of that is far from automatic. I think DSA is what DSA does is uh, is crucial in this regard. DSA exploded um, over the last four years, but that was almost after Trump was elected was the biggest wave of explosion. Has grown to now over eighty five thousand members. It's not automatic that that will just, you know, continue in a linear way forward. I think it will depend a lot on the policies and approach that DSA adopts. If DSA allows itself um, to be to be seen mainly as just sort of a a left pressure group within the framework of the Democratic Party that you know is doesn't sort of develop an independent profile of putting you know a coherent set of demands of offering. You know, effectively a political alternative. Um, you know, it's quite possible, actually, that it will be 
that other movements will develop, bypass it, that it will not be an attractive force as growing layers of working class people, the most radical layers of working class people find themselves frustrated at um, the limits of what is coming out of the leadership of the Democratic Party. DSA, I think, can um, lay the foundation, is, is better positioned than any other organization in U.S. society, to lay the foundations for a new party. Um, but that will take conscious effort. That will take, uh, there's a debate in DSA um, about this, but you know this term party surrogate has been used in relation to the strategy of a dirty break. It recognizes, yes, we are given the hugely undemocratic electoral laws that make the building of a third party quite difficult in the U.S. There is a challenge of how to overcome those. And um, what, what reform and revolution advocate is that we should, wherever possible, wherever the electoral laws don't create a massive disadvantage of running independent of the Democratic Party, we should do that. And that is most big city, city councils. You can run independent and there's no major electoral um, problem with doing that. Um, there's no lesser evil pressure. The Republicans basically don't exist in most major cities in, in the local po politics. So they're one party cities dominated by the Democrats. DSA should not run on the Democratic ballot line in those cases. DSA should run candidates independent of the Democrats and point to the need uh, to build a more developed independent alternative. There's other examples where because of the lesser evil pressures um, or other things where we accept that um, there is a tactical advantage uh, to using the Democratic Party ballot line. But we say DSA shouldn't you know, make a virtue of necessity. In those cases, um, they should link, they should explain this is a concession to these undemocratic laws. Um, our goal is to build a political alternative to the Democrats. DSA does not agree with the policy of the Democratic Party. We have our distinct set of, of policies, of socialist policies, of working class policies, and we're running on those policies. We're building a challenge to the Democratic Party, which is dominated by big business interests. And so, you know, that idea of building DSA more as a party, even where at times it uses the Democratic ballot line for tactical purposes, but where the direction is clear, publicly clear, internally clear, that we are building toward a, a political alternative, trying to build the social base, trying to break through, that can break through these undemocratic um, uh, ballot access laws, et cetera, um, in the direction of the new party. I think if DSA leadership adopted a policy like that, recruited candidates who advocated a policy like that, we will have huge opportunities in the Biden years to make important advances, to lay the framework and groundwork for what would be a historic breakthrough in U.S. society of you know, establishing, um, even if a small, a significant socialist, working class political alternative in this country, um, that's possible. But it will take a debate in DSA, first and foremost, and, um, and a leadership that is prepared to, to carry that out in a determined manner. Yeah, it might also take another example to prove that it can be done. You know, if you look at Shama Sawant in Seattle, elected over seven years ago, re-elected twice, it was really like a demonstration that you can run outside, you can run, as you said, in a Democratic-controlled city. There isn't the scare of a Republican getting in there and then demonstrating how you use such a position to build movements outside. And the strength that's gained there, particularly because movements are always faced with a question in terms of who do you vote for, who do you support when elections come around, can't ignore elections. So it will be incredibly important for DSA to consider also just 
you know, for DSA chapters to consider running candidates in cities where there's opportunities and there isn't barriers like there are in other cities. So that'll be interesting, I think, to see in, in, the, um, in the months and the, the next four years, at least ahead. Um, and I guess I, I wish everybody in America, I'll be watching closely, obviously, because I'm discussing with my family all the time and watching closely myself. But um, I wish all of you in Reform and Revolution, best of luck in the next months um, ahead with the work. It's, a, it's an exciting time. And I think um, we'll, we'll leave it there, Ty. Um, thanks so much for coming on Rupture Radio and updating us on what's happening with the Biden administration and, and some of the prospects for building the socialist movement. Really appreciate the conversation, Jess. Best to you all as well. Thanks. Thanks.